This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hello and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. When your baby is crying in the middle of the night, should you go to her or let her cry it out? And what about if your toddler is biting a playmate or a sibling? Should you punish him so that he'll learn to stop? Or is he too young for such a lesson? And if he is too young, what are you supposed to do? And how about if your second grader is lying to you? What's the best way to handle that? What's the impact of the kinds of choices that you make as parents on your child's emotional development? In this part of today's show, we're going to be answering those and a lot of other questions. And we're going to be focusing on small little steps that you can make, little adjustments that can help you move into kind of a natural partnership with your child's nature and your own. We're going to learn how to recognize the obstacles that keep us from making that natural partnership with the goal of helping raise a balanced and healthy child. I'm Armin Brott. We'll jump into all that and a lot more when Positive Parenting for Military Families on AFN continues right after this. I don't recycle. I mean, we can just find another planet for your kids to live on, you know? Noted non-recycler Tommy Crenshaw talks about the future. Well, I can totally see finding another planet that can support life when ours fills up with trash. Log on to yougottobekidding.org and learn about all the ways you can recycle, unless you're into lame excuses like Tommy's. Hey, recycling's just not my thing. Starting over on a new planet? Now that's exciting. Don't be that guy, unless you want people looking at you funny. Log on to yougottobekidding.org. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is William Levin, who's the author of Parenting Without Fear, The Foundation for Raising Balanced Children in a Healing World. William, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So let's define a couple of of words on the cover before we go on, because I think uh, that's going to be an important thing. Let's talk about what fear is and then, I guess, lack of balance, since you're talking about raising a balanced child. what, What does an unbalanced child look like? Okay, um, so the fear that I'm talking about in, in the title is really the fear that's, that's associated with shame, the fear, the fear that sort of is always swirled together with, with, the, with shame, with the sense that um, I'm, not, I'm not really good enough, there's something basically wrong with me, I'm afraid that I'm going to, uh, that, that what's basically wrong with me is, is going to... Um, somehow hurt my child, that it's going to somehow get uh, transmitted to my child, and my child's going to be um, going to come out not as okay as, as, as he or she should. Now, do you, are you talking about the things that, like, people are being afraid of, of repeating the mistakes that their parents made, or if they had a bad childhood that they're going to pass that on, or is there something else that's, that's slightly less of a straight line than what you're talking about? Well, it certainly, it certainly would include that. It would it would include specific concerns about about repeating things, but it, but it's also it's also a little deeper than that. It's it's also just this sort of lurking what 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 shame is, and I, and I perceive really what what inspired me to write the book is that is that I perceive that that we all kind of have we all kind of suffer from that. We all have this what I what I call a foundation of of shame because because 
that's just at the core of our of our cultural belief that that um, uh, that that human nature is sort of fundamentally flawed, and 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 that really then is sort of the same thing. It's like, well, if human nature is flawed, then I'm flawed, and uh, that seems to require an awful lot of self reflection and thought. And I'm kind of wondering. I mean, not to not that people don't do that, but. I mean, obviously, you're you're kind of looking at it from a clinical perspective, so you're dealing with a lot more people. But I'm just kind of curious how many people actually really do think about parenting in those kinds of terms that much. Oh, not very many. Which is again why I uh, why I saw um, a need for a book. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it's certainly not common to be to be thinking of things in those terms, and not and not common, I think, for for people too. Even perceive that that uh, you know that shame is is any kind of primary issue for for us as a culture or for them or for themselves personally. So so again, I you know I wrote the book to to be because I I think that um, consciousness around that kind of of issue would be very helpful, um, and I think that uh, a lack of consciousness around that issue sort of perpetuates the issue. Uh, okay. So, no, that's that's, that's that's fascinating. I'm just kind of I hadn't really <laughs> ever thought about things in terms of shame. It seems like with with the way that life is for most parents these days, it's hectic, and you're running around, and you're driving, and you're picking up, and you're cooking, and you're doing everything that needs to be done. You really haven't even got a chance to to think about what kind of a parent you're going to be. You just sort of jump in and do what needs to be done. I, I think for, for, for a lot of people. I mean there are plenty, I guess, who who really do think about it and really do try to make changes. But I'm just sort of imagining your your average everyday parent on the street probably I don't know, just haven't got time. Absolutely agree. Of course they don't. Of course they don't. Yeah. Uh and and uh and of course uh, uh when when you're in the midst, uh just just uh Getting it done each day and 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 uh, and and managing your time and 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 just doing the best you can is can really fill people up. But that said, mm-hmm. I think that that um, you know I'm really helping people to to just examine some of their basic assumptions. And and that's that kind of looking at your assumptions thing can can happen really any old time. I mean, you you, you sort of don't need free time to do that. Uh, you can you can do it. You know, you can do it for five minutes in the car. You can do it for five minutes before you go to sleep. You can do mm-hmm. it kind of any time. And it just and it just sort of percolates once you once you start thinking about it. Now, take us through just a little bit of what that would look like. How the the process starts. As far as you so you're saying you can do it five minutes while you're in the car, or five minutes be, before you go to bed. But what do you, what do you do? Are you sitting down and you're writing things down? Are you asking yourself specific questions about things? How does that start? Well, at a certain level, it starts with it. It starts with encountering the book, right? I mean, it doesn't start. In, it it wouldn't start in a vacuum. But but um, and and so. What I'm doing in in the in the discussion in the whole book is is pretty much laying out an explanation of of um, how it comes to be that that um, we're mistrusting our, our human nature and how that how that translates into believing in in 
conditional worthwhileness, and which is a term I, I haven't introduced until just this minute. But but so uh, ultimately, what what another way to describe shame? One way to describe it is is um, is a mistrust of human nature, and another way to describe it is a belief in in conditional worthiness, and and in the alternative, the correction to conditional worthiness and to shame, therefore, is, is unconditional worthiness, is believing that, that you personally and that, and that human beings, that everybody, is unconditionally worthy. And so, then, and so then that's just an idea that one can sort of try on like a coat. You know, you can try it on like, like, like something you might, you might wear around, something at first that would be really unfamiliar and really uncomfortable. And then the more you try it on, the more the more you start to get used to it. The more so, so it's a matter of just sort of thinking about it. It's like, well, what would that mean if I was unconditionally worthy, right? What would that mean if I didn't if I didn't have to fulfill some condition before I was a good person? What what if I'm what if I'm already a good person? Um, what if it's my birthright to be to be a good person? Um, Can you discuss a little bit why these things come up? And why, I mean, why people are, it seems like we're, we're going into the whole parenting thing from kind of a, a place of helplessness in a way, and this lack of trust, I mean, it's, it, it concerns me. I'm, con, I'm wondering why, why this happens. What is it that, that that's based on? I mean, usually fears of some kind are based well, yeah, on I something. Uh-huh. Um, I think it's just, I think it's a core belief that, that, that we have, and I think it's a problematic one. I think it's a false belief that that is really um, pretty widely shared, uh, certainly, certainly widely shared in, in, in Western culture. Um, and I think pretty much all culture, although I'm not, I'm not, a, you know, I'm not a social anthropologist. So, but, but as far as I can tell, um, it, there, there hasn't been a, a society yet that's that's really free of this, and 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 how it arises, I think, Armin, is is that um, is that we misunderstand, we mistake the symptoms of mistrusting nature and the symptoms of responding to our children as though there's something dangerous within them that we need to tame and train away. Um, that 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 causes for certain kinds of problems that leads to certain sorts that leads to shame and and then shame leads to other sorts of problems and then and then we become symptomatic because of those problems we we um we grow up to be less generous we grow up to be um more quick to anger we grow up to be quicker to jealousy we grow up to have a whole bunch of really immature sorts of emotions um, that that um, that we sort of get get stuck in, um, and then and then we look at all of that happening, and we say, oh, see, this is this is what human nature is like. This is what people are, are basically like. You see, what we're looking at right now is human nature, un, uncivilized human nature, unsocialized human nature, un, uh, inadequately tamed and trained, and so we need to do it better and harder, and we need to. We need to tame and train people more, and and so then it just goes around and around that way, and 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 so again at the core of that is just misunderstanding the symptoms mm-hmm. of of misunderstanding and misusing human nature for human nature itself. 
I'm speaking with William Levin, who's the author of Parenting Without Fear, The Foundation for Raising Balanced Children in a Healing World. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to William and keep getting into a little bit more about uh, how to get restore that balance. I'm Armin Brunt, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. My name is Rachel, and in eight years, I'll be an alcoholic. Kids who drink before age 15 are five times more likely to have alcohol problems when they're adults. I'll start drinking in middle school, and I'll do some things I don't really want to do. So by the time my parents talk to me about it, alcohol won't be my only problem. So start talking before they start drinking. To learn more, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, the Ad Council, and this station. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, we're talking with William Levin, who's the author of Parenting Without Fear, The Foundation for Raising Balanced Children in a Healing World. William, thanks for sticking with us. Hey, it's my pleasure. I want to skip ahead a little bit here. Sure. You you talked about some things, actually, that I'm I'm fascinated about, which is uh, EMDR. Uh-huh. You know what? Be- before we skip ahead, let's let's talk about that because it's it's an interesting type of therapy. That's the eye movement desensitization, right? Correct. Can, can you explain what that is? I, it just seems like such an amazing thing. It is an amazing thing. Uh, um, it's a it's a process. It, it 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 originated. There was a woman, a psychologist named Francine Shapiro, who was uh, who reports that she was walking through a park one day, and she was having this traumatic memory. And um, and just sort of reliving a, a trauma and, and just feeling it and 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 just being really upset as as we can be sometimes when we're when we're remembering something awful and and then for some reason and nobody knows why this happened but but for some reason her eyes started moving uh, back and forth left and right uh, in 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 her head just moving back and forth kind of rapidly. And then that stopped, and and it distracted her from what she was doing. And then and then she she sort of was wanting to finish it, sort of. So she went back to this memory, and all of a sudden, what she found is that the traumatic emo- the memory was still there, but the traumatic emotion was was gone. And she said, "Wow, that's interesting and weird." And and um, and so then she started trying to replicate it with with friends and family and and. And it seemed to be quite replicable that 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 you know you have someone uh, remember in, a, in an emotional kind of way remember feel again the tra- a trauma and then and then she would say okay follow my finger and then your eyes move back and forth following the finger and there's a certain sort of optimal rate for doing that and and that would tend to it's not a hundred percent thing but it would tend to uh, make the traumatic emotion um, disappear, sort of deactivate the, the the emotion from the memory, disconnect it from the, from the memory. Why on earth would that work? Well, um, so the most important answer, Armin, is that no one knows for sure, and and um, and there are some some guesses about that. A lot of people have, have guessed that it has something to do with rapid eye movement, sleep, and something naturally corrective about that. Um, I think that, and, and this is, you know, somewhat pivotal to, to some of what I'm saying in the book, I, I, I think that, that, it's, that what is happening when, when your eyes move back and forth that way is that the parts of your brain that are attached to your eyes are getting stimulated. 
in that in a kind of a rhythmic and alternating way, left side, right side, left side, right side, and that and that that stimulation, I think, that rapid alternating, uh, rhythmic alternating stimulation on the left and right side of the brain, actually is what is simulates the experience of an infant being held in someone's arms and being walked, and I think I think it's the same thing that we simulate when we when when we use a cradle or when when we use uh, uh, now there are mechanical rockers and when we're when we're rocking a child to soothe them I think that's that's what we're creating is this is this uh, is that kind of stimulation and 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 then the inference is that that kind of that that winds up I think I think that that's the code uh, in the brain for um, for deactivating. Um, the feeling of being very, very frightened and, and mm. feeling like you're going to die because you're alone, which is, I think, what what the very young infant feels when they're alone and screaming in the crib. And so it's it's nature's way of of calling to the caregiver, and nature's way of also registering that receiving the the information that the caregiver has in fact come because the baby doesn't have any ability to to conceptualize that, oh, yeah, daddy's come now. The, you know, the baby doesn't think, the baby doesn't have language. And so there needs to be some sort of nonverbal mechanism right. for, for that to happen, sort of like a digital house alarm. You know, we, before we went on the air, we were talking a little bit about the kind of the difference between our writing styles, and the, you're kind yes. of more, more on the theoretical end and I'm more on the, on the practical end, I you suppose. Yeah. So, but I want to I force you, I guess, to do a little bit of the practical stuff because I— I thought listeners are, are listening and thinking, well, okay, how can I take some of this stuff and implement it in my life and make things better? Yes. So let's talk about some of the steps that you would advise people. Somebody who is listening to this and thinking, you know what, I, I, what he's saying makes some sense. I do have kind of a sense of, of shame or not being worthwhile. So what do you tell people about that? And, and how, you know, how can we move forward past that? You bet. Well, I think that the first the first thing that you want to do then is, I mean, the yeah, you, the first thing you want to do is you just want to presume that both your nature and your kid's nature are are innocent, and and that and especially with with a very young child, that you wanna you wanna sort of think that whatever they're doing and 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 however they're behaving is is really their nature trying to send you a message and what you want to do is receive that message you want to trust that that their human nature knows what it's doing when it's sending that message that this is about something that's important in the opinion of human nature and and that and so the first thing you want to do is receive that message that 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 the message itself is designed in such a way that it needs to know that it's been received. That that's sort of the moral of the story of the EMDR. Um, that that the message needs to be received. And so the first order of business when you're when you're dealing with your child, be it be it a very young child or or, or even a um, even a preschooler, or even even a, a grade schooler, that. You want to be sure and receive that message. You want to be sure and let your child know that that yes, you you understand what they're wanting to communicate to you. So if they're really angry, before you before you try and help them to um, to do something 
may be more appropriate with their anger. You want to just acknowledge, yes, I, I know you're telling me that you're angry, or or if they're, or you know, when they're when they're expressing things that that we tend to to find objectionable or think need correcting, like if they're being particularly selfish or if they're uh, like being aggressive against the sibling, um, that that before you correct. Um, and it's not to say don't correct. It's not to say it's not to say oh let your kids do whatever they want. But but it's but it is to say um, let your kids want whatever they want and acknowledge that that um, whatever they're doing is some kind of important communication about what's going on with them. And so if they're trying to hit their brother with a truck, you want to say well I understand you want to hit your brother with a truck. I mean maybe you stop him first. But you want to say I know you want to hit your <laughs> yeah. brother with a truck. Um, and don't worry, I'm not going to let you do that. I'm not. I'm not going to let you hurt anybody. Um, but I understand that you want to. Um, and and um, and so that would be that would be receiving that message as opposed to not receiving it. Um, and if we and sometimes I think we move so quickly to correction that we skip over that part of receiving the message. Um, and that and then I think what happens is that that message. Uh, winds up storing and re-delivering because it needs to be received in some very, very natural and mechanical, mechanistic kind of way. It just what does it mean to be, to be received? received though? Huh? I mean, how, do, how does a child process that? Okay, tr- child hears, I'm not going to let you hit your brother with a truck. Right. So how, how does that change the child's behavior next time? Um it doesn't necessarily change the child's behavior next time. What it what it does, I mean, I'm not going to let you. I'm not going to let you. It, 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 in this particular example, if you said that, that would help them to be a little less anxious, so that they might be a little less likely to um, to feel like they want to hit their brother the next time. That 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 there's a certain way in which you know when a kid when a kid is is doing the worst kind of thing they're really they're really wanting you to structure them they're wanting you to protect them from from those kinds of impulses mm, and so okay. if you say to them don't worry i'm going to protect you that that does help them to relax a little bit um but but a lot of what i'm talking about a, a lot of of what what i'm concerned with is is um is not having these messages go unreceived and therefore accumulate and therefore re-deliver themselves into adulthood and therefore cause us to be as adults symptomatic because um, I think that's what happens. I think that these messages yep. store, they're like registered letters and they just, or UPS packages. And if they don't get received, they, they just store and re-deliver and that, mm-hmm. and that, you know, that PTSD is, uh, is post-traumatic stress disorder, which is, which is what the EMDR is sort of resolving that that's I think that's really just the tip of of, of our iceberg, right. the tip of our emotional iceberg. That that's just how our emotions work, and that we're having lots of these sort of minor, mini PTSD experiences a lot mm-hmm. in adulthood. Uh, William Levin is the author of Parenting Without Fear: The Foundation for Raising Balanced Children in a Healing World. Thanks for joining us. Great to have you. My pleasure. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment, and I'm joined, as usual, by Samantha Fuse. Sam, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Have you been working out your your 60 minutes a day? 
You know, I actually have every day this week except for Friday because it was a half day for so my you, son at school. So yeah. you're you're actually doing that. That's that's the recommendations that people have. The this the fitness experts and cardio experts say for for kids should be about an hour a day, and for adults, an hour a day wouldn't hurt, but uh, at least thirty. So that you're doing well. You're doing well. Yeah, it was my New Year's resolution this year. As as you know, last year I didn't go to the gym, and it didn't do me any good. So this year I joined again. Well, I have to confess that I'm something of an obsessive exerciser. And, I'm aware. And I, I hassle my poor 10-year-old into exercising with me a lot, but she's she secretly appreciates it. And so we get all this exercise stuff coming in and wanted to talk about a couple of things that I think may actually be able to help folks out there and exercise themselves, but also get the family involved, which is why I, I wanted to take a look at these things. And the, there are two things that are very similar. One's called the Fitbug and one's called the Fitbit, excuse me, Fitbit and Fitbug. And as you can imagine, there is a lawsuit by one of them against the other because they're just too similar. They're too similar physically, and they're too similar in, in well, name. It wouldn't be American if somebody wasn't suing someone else. Oh, ab- absolutely. That's part of it. I guess that's how maybe lawyers get their <laughs> exercises, by suing people. It's, well, uh, that's, that's exercising your constitutional <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it probably helps your cardio somewhat, too. Yeah. <laughs> Keeps your so, heart rate up. <laughs> so there's, there's pictures of these things on the website at parentsatplay.com. You can find that on there if you look for Fitbug or Fitbit. The Fitbug, is it the watch or is it the, the, the pocket thing or is it the combination of the two? You know, it's an interesting thing. Both of them are they're sort of roundish plastic things. I don't know what mm-hmm. you want to call them. And then they can go into a variety of different housings. There's, you, it goes into something that clips over your belt. It mm-hmm. goes into something that you can wear... You can clip onto your underwear. It goes into something you can wear around your neck on a chain or on a watch band as well. So any of those things work very, very well. One of the big differences is that, and they they each have advantages and disadvantages. The Fitbug is, I don't understand why they didn't do this, but it doesn't have something that can actually measure your sleep. And you wouldn't think, okay, sleep is that big of a deal, but it's really getting to be a very popular thing for these, these fitness monitors to track how well you sleep. And it keeps track of your pulse or you're waking and, and slowing down, and it's that that just isn't there for the fit bug. Well, we all like to lose calories in our sleep, but it might be a bit of a dream instead of you know reality. The the and the fit bug also doesn't have a display. It's a, such a, a weird thing. It's just an orb. They call it an mm-hmm. orb, and it just has a light on it—a a green light or a red light, depending on what's going on. And so the only way that you can really tell what's going on with what you're doing is by going online or onto the, the app, the, the smartphone app, or onto your computer, and then it tracks everything because it, it's Bluetoothing it all to where it's supposed to go. For beginning exercisers, I think it, both of those are pretty good things because they're going to keep track of your steps. They're going to keep track of roughly how much time you're, you're spending running or walking. It's able to tell the difference between those two things. But it's w- without the display, I found it a little bit no, I yeah, I don't think it. I would like it as much about the display. I like to be able to look at the, you know, even if it's just the treadmill that I'm running on, how far have I gone, what's my heart rate, how many calories have I burned, whatever. I like being able to see the visual whenever I feel like it. Yeah, and there was a watch that actually didn't make it into this review, but I'm going to put it into another review called the Basis, which is one of the coolest-looking watches you can imagine. It's just it's absolutely blank. There's nothing on it except for four tiny silver dots, one on each corner of the face. And so you touch one of those dots, and it tells you the time. It tells you how many steps you've taken. It tells me your pulse. It's it's really very, very cool. And that thing is serious business fitness. That's not for your average beginner. It's going to keep track of how much time you're doing everything. It keeps track of 
how many times you get up a night. It keeps track of your, your pulse, your resting pulse. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And I, I, I've been wearing that watch for quite a while. And uh, the, the problem with that one is that there always has to be a problem with these things in some way, is that that watch, you have to charge it every couple of days. I mean, really and truly, every couple of days, you have to plug it in, and then it downloads its stuff to your computer. And sometimes you just don't remember to charge your watch every couple of days. It's not an intuitive thing. The Back to the Fitbit and the Fitbug, those things last for six months. You don't have to put hmm. a battery in there at all. So uh, I'm, I was very impressed with, with those on, I, I guess, well, all three of them to, to different degrees. And then there was one. I don't know if you guys have a pull-up bar. You guys have a pull-up bar at your house? I actually do have a Gorilla Gym. Oh, really? I do, and I love it. I'm, um, like I said, last year I, I did lapse a little bit on my own personal working out, and my, my waistband has suffered. But um, I actually have been doing yoga and kickboxing since I was a teenager. I used to be a competitive athlete. I knew that. Yeah, the Gorilla Gym is actually really cool. And um, I, I've been using the, uh, the punching bag. There's a speed punching bag, and mm-hmm. but there's also a heavy bag, and that's what I personally prefer. But there's also, which I cannot wait to try out for my son, there's a swing unit for, you know, those horrible, now I'm in, I'm on the East Coast, we have horrible and long winters here. Oh, yeah. Um, so it'll be fantastic, I can't wait till it gets here, and I am excited, if it's anywhere near as great as um, my experience has been as an adult, I cannot wait to do the review for this. Um, it's got a swing, it's, it's got um, a little trapeze bar, it's got a bunch of cute mm-hmm. little things on it, and the entire set, I think, if you buy it additionally to the uh, the pull-up bar, it's only like $50 for several pieces of equipment. Yeah. Keep your kid busy inside for hours. And it, it, it is really, really, absolutely the most solid piece of exercise equipment yeah, I've ever had a chance to, to do. Up. Yeah, easy to put up. Only took about 10 minutes probably. I think you know, in their website or their, their promotional video, they say you can do it in a minute. I don't think you can. Uh, I, I um, need yeah, it. I need I, it I actually can't. I'm really short. Uh, as, as you know, <laughs> so I actually had my husband do it. It took him, I think, about 10 minutes as well. Yeah. I'm sure if you know exactly what you're doing, you can get it up and down in a minute. But <laughs> It makes no marks on your walls. It doesn't None. It doesn't push the door jam out of whack like those things that I had when I was a kid that you, you they're, they're pressurized or pressure mounted. And so you, they keep getting long, longer and longer and they keep destroying your doors. None of that's happening. We have the swing, and I swing on that sometimes. My daughter swings on it sometimes. It, it, there's just something really cool about swinging inside your house. Yeah. Um, and uh, to give you kind of a sense of how strong this thing is and how how little damage it's doing to the doors, I've got a friend who, sadly for him, he refuses to work out at all. He's, he's <laughs> close to 300 pounds. Oh, and he has hang, he's been hanging on that bar sometimes when he comes over and without any visible damage. The house may be tilting completely, but that, that, <laughs> that pull-up bar is just fine. My husband is very, very, and you, you've met my husband. He's a very tall, very solidly built man, and uh, he hasn't caused any damage to it either. He's, he's hung on it a few times. He's nervous he's going to break it. I keep oh, trying no. to convince him he will not. But not <laughs> possible. Yeah, take a look at the video. They've got a motorcycle hanging from That's the That's what thing, I so. showed him. He, yeah. does, he's, he doesn't, you, you know him. He doesn't believe a thing I'm telling him, but it's, um, you know, he, he's convinced he's going to break it. He's got it in his mind that he's just, he's going to kill it. I'm like, if a motorcycle's not going to break it, you're not going to break it. <laughs> that was the Gorilla Gym, and you can get reviews of that in a little bit more depth and a lot of other products at parentsatplay.com. For Samantha Fuse, I'm Armin Brott.
Hello and welcome back to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show on AFN. I'm Armin Brott. The self-help industry generates a billion dollars a year. Just think about all the slogans and messages and things that you see on T-shirts and coffee mugs and on the media every day and in conversations with your family and your friends. It's everywhere. But do all those books and tapes and weekend seminars really help anybody? Why do some people swear by the power of positive thinking while others say it's just a bunch of garbage? Those are just a few of the questions that my guest for this part of today's show, Jessica Lamb Shapiro, wrote about in her book, Promised Land. Jessica, whose father has written a number of self-help books, decided that she really wanted to look into what's really going on in the self-help industry. And in the name of research, she took a class on how to find a husband. She walked on hot coals and ate breakfast with more than 100 grieving children. She tried to cure herself of a debilitating fear of flying. She helped a friend make a vision board, and she even attended a conference on how to write best-selling self-help books. But Jessica had a personal interest in this as well, because her mother had died when she was very young. And so the more she delved into the history and the practice of the self-help industry, the harder it became to convince herself that all this research was just academic. Of all of that research, she says, the hardest thing was talking to her father about her mother. So if you or anybody you know has ever turned to the self-help section in a bookstore or online, you're not going to want to miss this interview. We're going to start right after this. McGruff the Crime Dog here. Let's hear from an identity thief. Identities are easy to catch online. I send people an official-looking email pretending to be their bank or credit card company and ask them to confirm their personal information. Looks them every time. Safeguard your personal information on the phone, online, and especially at home because half of identity theft occurs by someone you think you know. Keep your identity to yourself and take a bite out of crime. Learn more from the National Crime Prevention Council at ncpc.org. A message from this station, the U.S. Department of Justice, Crime Prevention Coalition of America, and the National Crime Prevention Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Jessica Lamb Shapiro, who's the author of Promise Land, My Journey Through America's Self-Help Culture. Jessica, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Promise is without a D at the end, just so you know. So how did you happen to decide to immerse yourself in self-help? I I think that that would, uh, it just seems like it would be suicide-inducing, practically, (laughs) to have as much of it as you had, you dealt with, which was purely voluntary, but what what brought you there? Well, first you have to know that I kind of grew up with it, because my dad is a self-help writer, so even though I wasn't reading self-help books, he was writing books, and there were other, I'm okay, you're okay was around. Oh, yeah. And uh, we also had all these cooperative board games, you know, nobody wins unless everybody wins. They're really boring. So I was kind of um, immersed in this self-help culture from birth, basically. And in a way, I found it really uninteresting because of that. Um, And then about 10 years ago, my dad uh, found out that there was a conference being held by the guy who wrote Chicken Soup for the Soul. And he decided that maybe Mark Victor Hansen, who was leading the workshop, had some secrets that he didn't have about being a self-help writer. And so he decided to go. And I just thought it would be a funny thing to go with. Um, I didn't really see that it would end up being this whole book. But so you got past the chicken soup part of it, though. Yeah. So once I went to the chicken soup part, um, I started to get interested because I think the thing that most interested me was how emotional the people were. Um, there were a lot of adults crying, uh, doing strange things like drawing smiley faces on each other's index fingers. 
And so I felt that something powerful was happening if it was making adults cry and do really strange things. And that's kind of what got me interested. Do you define things like est as self-help or is that kind of more culty? Um, you know, I cast a really wide net, and there is a definition problem because self-help books even are not really self-help. There's an old George Carlin joke that goes, you know, if you buy it in a bookstore, it's not self-help, it's just help. Um, but I try to just include as much as possible, and that's why I, in the subtitle, call it self-help culture, uh, because I'm interested in the way that people who don't even read self-help books or know what EST is are still affected by the ethos of self-help in the culture. Hmm. Yeah, I had a couple brushes with this sort of stuff when I was younger. My parents, sort of a, an, a ridiculous story in a way, but it's kind of revealing of, of my parents that, <laughs> that they they were members of a club, a, a health club in, in Oakland, California, called the Athens Athletic Club. And we used to go swimming and summer camps, sports camps and things there. And then the Athens Athletic Club sold the building and my parents decided that they wanted to keep going to that club, so they joined the group that owned the building, and the group, the group happened to be Synanon, which has gone down in history as being one of the most <laughs> colossally horrible uh, kinds of things. But it was very much a self-help kind of thing, and there were all these encounter groups and stuff like that that were just bizarre. Um, and then they later on, they, they got into, not S, it was called Lifespring, um, which was another kind of esty sort of a thing. And mm-hmm. and. I don't know if it was maybe because I was young and, and felt dragged to these things, but they always kind of made me cringe that there just seemed to be something remarkably unsincere about a lot of the people who were in these things. Did you come across that? Well, to me, it wasn't so much that they were insincere that made me uncomfortable. It was a kind of desperation, you know, that obviously in order to do S. I know very little about it, except that I know you weren't allowed to go to the bathroom, which to me sounds really horrible. Yeah. Um, so in order to subject yourself to something like that and screaming and whatever sorts of weird therapies, there has to be something that you're really desperate for and that you really want. Um, and so I don't, you know, to me that's a kind of sincerity. Uh, maybe you meant the sincerity of the people teaching the classes? Yeah, I, a little bit of both. I mean, there there were people who would have these remarkable, incredible, deep emotional breakthroughs five mm-hmm. minutes into you know, into <laughs> into something. You think, well, how how did that happen? We haven't even met anybody, and you're already crying, and life is better. Uh, I don't yeah, know, maybe I'm too I much of a, a cynic. kind of mass hysteria. You know, maybe being with a group of people can make you really emotional very quickly. Um, I have been in situations like that as well, and it is very strange, especially if you're not feeling it, that somebody might just start crying. Um, but, you know, it's hard to fake cry, so if something is going on, I'm just not always sure exactly what it is. Yeah. So I want to talk about some of the specifics here, but overall, what was your the feeling when you finished researching the book and all the travels that you did? Do you think it's a, a that it does more harm than good or good than harm as, as an overall movement? I think it's just such a vast world that it's really impossible to say. Um, there are definitely things out there that are doing harm, um, and there are also books and support groups out there that are doing good. And so it's hard to say. You know, I, I couldn't really tally up how many there are maybe, and make a pie chart and say, like, okay, it's 51% good and 49% bad. Um, 
well, I, it's I had a lot be of difficulty with that because that was something I wanted to know. I wanted to just make a pronouncement on it, but I found myself really unable to to summarily account for it in one way or another. Well, I guess there's going to be believers of any kind, so something that may not work for you is could be absolutely life-altering in a positive way for somebody else. I exactly, mean, I guess yeah. it is it is hard to hard to say that. What was one that in just in your estimation was the most helpful to people or or perhaps meant the meant the most to you? Um one of the things that meant the most to me was a book that I read about grieving called Motherless Daughters and oh, yeah. Ironically, it was the book that I kind of hated the most before I started reading it. I just hated the title. I hated the cover. It made me angry. <laughs> it made me really <laughs> anxious. And I had it for about three months before I even started reading it. I would just sort of glare at it every once in a while. Um, and I'm not sure. There was just something about it that I didn't like. Um, you know, it seemed overly sentimental and a little cliched to me. And this is even before I even opened the book. So once I started reading it, (laughs) all of a sudden I was really identifying with some of the things that the author was saying because I had lost my mother at a very young age. And she was saying that she had had thoughts or gone through feelings that I had thought and felt. And then all of a sudden I was like, this is an amazing book. I love this book. (laughs) I feel so understood. Everything makes sense now. Um, and there was just a lot of information in there that I found really helpful. Um, so it, it was really funny, the sort of the arc of the relationship that I had with that book where I hated it so much and then I really loved it. Would you consider that a self-help book, though? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Huh. That's interesting. I, I, I interviewed the author. It never occurred to me that that was a self-help book. I guess maybe not being a motherless daughter, maybe that was part of it. It didn't obviously speak to me in the same way. I was looking at it kind of as a as a research thing and as good advice and helping people. Under, oh, I guess maybe that's the definition yeah, of go. self-help. I don't know. Yeah, okay. <laughs> they also have a workbook, which is much more clearly a self-help book, um, where it sort of asks you questions and then you write down your answers and it's sort of journaling and that sort of thing. Okay. All right, so let's take the other side of that then. So what was the one that was the most meaningless? I really hated The Secret. I hated that before I read it, and I hated it after I read it. Of the Law of Attraction? The Law of Attraction. Yeah. Um, you know, for, for one thing, the title annoyed me because The Law of Attraction has been around for about 100 years, and so I kind of resented being told that it was a secret when, according to the research I had done, it was definitely not a secret. You know, people have been talking <laughs> about this for so long. Um and then, you know, the law of attraction is not a real law. There's your mind, there, the mind is powerful, and the mind can help with positive thinking, um, and it can help us achieve things. And to some extent, that's just common sense. But you can't conjure a parking space with your mind, and you can't conjure a house with your mind. Um, and they weren't, they never made any attempt to really explain how it worked. So they were just asking for a lot of belief. Uh, without offering a lot of evidence as to how this thing might work. Yeah, I think as an author, I resented it because it was so incredibly successful (laughs) based on giving so little information. I mean, it just seemed like, you know, I I write books that are not exactly self-help books, but they're kind of guides and encouraging people and giving people skills to to be better dads in this particular case. But it's like, I think I'm doing something that has some meaning. And then you're writing a book about just say, hey, I want some money and it'll show up and, and you're going to make millions of dollars selling? It just doesn't seem fair. 
<laughs> well, it's definitely not fair. Yeah. I mean, who knows? Maybe that's why it's so successful. You know, the fact that it's just so general and it's so wish fulfillment based. You know, a lot of people who buy self-help books, they don't want to work. You know, they don't want to do the work um, to make their relationships better, to make their lives better. They just want to wish for something and have it magically appear. So, you know, it just appeals to them to hear that. And I think that we really readily buy into things that we want to be true, even if our common sense tells us that it's probably not true. Jessica Lamb Shapiro is the author of Promise Land, My Journey Through America's Self-Help Culture. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Jessica. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, we're continuing our discussion with Jessica Lamb Shapiro, who's the author of Promised Land, My Journey Through America's Self-Help Culture. And I'm wondering whether, so you went to a whole bunch of different meetings and organizations and, and had a chance to, to sit through a lot, a lot of stuff. Did you bump into the same people in various places? I'm kind of wondering whether there's like self-help groupies who, who just go to one after the other after the other. Um, there definitely are. I did not happen to bump into anyone because I was trying to cast a pretty wide net. And I think that people tend to go to certain kinds of workshops over and over. Um, but it definitely seemed like some of the people who were in the rules class that I went to had been there before. They definitely knew each other. Um, so I, it definitely seems like they're sort of groupies or junkies or whatever you want to call them. Yeah, and it's wondering if, if, if they're looking for a particular thing, are they, what, what is it that they're looking for if they keep going to these things? Because I, I mean, guess by, you know, if they keep going, community. if they go to the second one or the third one, it sort of by definition says that the first one didn't work. Well, that, that is true. I had this theory that it's totally unsubstantiated, but that maybe it was like going to church. And, you know, just people wanted to be around other people who were kind of searching for similar things. And even if they weren't getting it, it was just about being with other people and having a community, because I think a lot of people are pretty isolated now. Um, I have no proof that that's true, but that was one of my theories. Okay. All right. So tell us about, about some of the specifics. You talked about walking on hot coals. I've always wanted to do that. I think. Really? <laughs> well, I, it just seemed like something that would be kind of uh, an accomplishment. I don't know. What, what, what was it like for you? Maybe was, you'll talk me out I was it. terrified. I was so scared. And it was funny because earlier in the day, I had done a bunch of research. And I had learned from my research that it's really unlikely that you'll get burned walking on hot coals because it works because of physics. Um, basically, the ash around the coal is insulating. And it's not, they tell you that it's about having an intention in your mind. You know, if you believe you won't get burned, then you won't get burned. But you basically won't get burned because it's very hard to get burned. If you stood in one place. You keep moving, yeah. If you keep yeah. moving and you're going at a good pace, then you're probably not going to get burned. Um, so even though I knew this, and I do trust in science, once I got there and I saw they make this big bonfire, and it's just a huge hot fire. <laughs> And then it, the darkness descends and the coals start glowing and it just looks wrong. And you're barefoot and you just think, or I just thought, I really don't want to do this. <laughs> you're going to get burned. So it was an interesting experience because 
even though I knew that chances were I was going to be fine, it still required a lot of bravery for me to do it because I just was so, on some animal level, very terrified. Um, And I did feel pretty good afterwards uh, because I had sort of pushed through that fear and nothing happened. I mean, it's not even that hot. It sort of felt like it was just warm, really. Would you do it if it was uh, walking across ground up, or not ground up, but broken glass, which is something else that you see people do sometimes? That one seems to be more challenging of the laws of physics. Yeah, I would not do that. (laughs) I really like my feet not cut up and bleeding. Um, (laughs) If I somehow found out that there was some scientific reason that I wasn't going to do it, then I might be able to mentally get over it. But yeah, no, I would not go in for anything where my feet would probably get cut. So what was one of the ones that you went to? You talked about uh, overcoming phobias and fears. Mm -hmm. Did you see some transformation in in any of the the groups that you went to over over time that you saw somebody walk in and you think, oh, that, that person looks sad or distraught or something. And then at the end, you see that 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 person has somehow made a a transition or improved or something? Well, definitely the the fear of flying um, class that I went to, that met over six weeks. And I think that repeatedly meeting over time helps more than just going to something once. Um, we actually met at the at the airport. So we would all talk about why planes were safe and our fears. And then we would get on a stationary plane after the class for about 10 minutes. And the first class, I mean, everybody was a nervous wreck. I was a nervous wreck because I'm terrified of flying. I mean, you could just see in people's faces blood had drained. They were shaking. Some of them were crying before we even got on the plane. Oh, this is a plane that's not going to be going anywhere. This is a plane that's not going anywhere. Okay. So it's, <laughs> it's like the totally cold. So. stationary plane. <laughs> but this was the extent of people's fear, and I really understood it because I had it myself. And then after doing this six times, you really do get desensitized, you know, the sort of basis is the cognitive behavioral therapy, where if you do something enough times, you just get desensitized to it. And you could just see that showing up at the class, people were relaxed, they were laughing, they were joking, we'd get on the plane, it wouldn't be a big deal. Um, So that was a really amazing transformation to witness over, you know, six weeks is not a really long time, um, but it was enough. Did you change your ideas about flying or your fears about flying after that? I did, actually. Um, A lot of it was getting information. Um, So once I learned kind of how planes work and why my fears weren't rational, um, that really helped me get over it. Um, But to some extent, I just needed to get on that plane six times, and then I did do a short flight. Um, And then I didn't fly for a few years, but then I just flew to Paris with my dad, and I actually had no trouble at all. What is the cult of expertise? Uh, The cult of expertise when you're talking about self-help is kind of non-existent. I mean, it's basically this idea that we think people are experts when they write a book. Um, And sometimes they are. Sometimes they've gone to school. Sometimes they've been thinking about something for 20 years. But sometimes they haven't. Sometimes they just got an idea and they just wrote a book and now they're calling themselves an expert. And there's a way in which the media is complicit in this. Um, because once they call someone an expert, they confer that further authority onto that person. Um, So I was really interested in looking at this idea of what makes an expert, if anything, and, you know, sort of what our ideas and our 
desires are around having experts. Why do we need them? And what did you decide? Um, you know, I think that there is such a thing as an educated person on a subject. Um, my dad's a child psychologist, and he can speak to issues involving children in psychology. Um, but in the case that I cite in the book, he became an expert on this thing called the choking game, which is a game that kids play with each other uh, when they cut off oxygen uh, they get a little high, and some kids were dying. And my dad got called, and he was an expert on one show, and then all of a sudden he was the de facto expert. So because his name came up in Google searches with relation to this one show, every time somebody searched, they found him, and they were like, oh, he's the expert, to the point where even friends of mine thought that my dad's training was in the choking game, which there's no such thing as training. I, actually, I shouldn't say that because I don't know that, but I'm pretty sure that there's no school where people can go and learn about the choking game. Um, so just watching that and kind of having that behind-the-scenes view of how my dad got turned into an expert on something that, you know, in a sense he was qualified to comment on because he does understand children and psychology, and in another sense he wasn't as qualified to talk about as the media was making it out to seem. But it seemed like from the, the little bit of a of an interview, or I guess the dialogue that you have in the book, mm -hmm. that he didn't really necessarily believe that it was a sex thing. Oh, no, it wasn't. He was right about that. I was wrong about that. Really? <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes. I... No, with children, it's not. Oh, They're just okay. trying to get high. Okay. All right, because I... I seen enough of these things. Well, you, you, I saw, no, no, probably saw the, I same, the same SVU episode that <laughs> exactly, you saw. Exactly, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, I think David Carradine, and there have been a number of famous people who have been found hanging yeah, because well, their I things the got a little out of control. Anytime you're self-asphyxiating, you can pass out and die, whether you're doing it for sexual reasons or you think it's fun. Would Again. you go back to any of these self-help things? Um, I would Explore absolutely go back to the fear of flying class if I needed it, and I would go again to the grief camp that I went to for kids. Um, I mean, I can't go as a camper because I'm not a kid anymore, um, but I would definitely go back and volunteer as an adult because I thought that was a really great organization. Jessica Lamb Shapiro is the author of Promised Land, My Journey Through America's Self-Help Culture. Jessica, you have a website people can go to for more about this? Uh, yeah, promiselandbook.com. No D. PromiseLandBook.com. Oh, great. Yeah. Jessica, thanks for joining us. Really fascinating book. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.